Tonight on Farage, it feels like a big moment in global politics. I wonder, is America still a trusted ally? Andrew Neil joins me to answer that question. And on Talking Pints, I'm joined by Rusty Furman, one of the SAS heroes from 1980 when they stormed the Iranian embassy. This for me is a very difficult subject. Uh, nearly 40 years ago, I went to work, aged 18, and the first firm I worked for was a big American company. I've spent over 20 years working for American companies, both in the commercial business world of commodities, but also in media as well. I've spent quite a large chunk of my life in America. I've got a lot of friends in America. I've always believed strongly in a special relationship. I even managed to get myself involved in American politics a few times. But something I feel has changed over the course of the last few days. The sheer level of contempt with which Joe Biden treated not just Boris Johnson, but also his other NATO allies. The fact that Boris Johnson wanted a phone call early on Monday morning, didn't get one until 10 p.m. on Tuesday. The fact that Joe Biden didn't speak to a single other world leader for 48 hours after Kabul fell, says to me that America is back uh, was little more than a sick joke. And I really am asking myself the question, is America still a trusted ally of ours. So please give me your thoughts on that, gbviews at gbnews.uk. But to sort of think about the significance of all of this, I'm joined by Andrew Neal. Andrew, good evening. Now, Andrew, you've, um, you've been around in journalism and commentary and broadcasting, and when you started, America was in Vietnam. And you saw the fall of Saigon, you've seen the fall of the Berlin Wall, you've seen governments come and go, countries disappear. Uh, in terms of you know, your long career studying all of this, just how big a moment is this American withdrawal from Afghanistan and the Taliban taking control? I don't think there's been a bigger moment or a bigger setback for American foreign policy than since the Second World War. That's how big it is. It's as bad as that. It combines the cack-handedness of the uh, CIA-backed invasion of Cuba in uh, the Bay of Pigs in 1961 under uh, President Kennedy. That ended in farce. It combines the drama of what happened in Saigon in 1975 when the Americans had to get out quickly, the famous scenes of the helicopters. It took America a generation to recover from that. But it also is now developing shades of the Tehran hostage situation in 1979-1980. And it's all these three things rolled up into one. And it, uh, it sends a signal to the rest of the world that America is not to be trusted as an ally, that American power is in decline, uh, that other forces are now rising up. Who benefits from this other, of course, than the Taliban? It's Russia. It's China. It's the, the main uh, antagonists, the main rivals to America. And I think it's, a, you know, there's nobody more pro-American than me. And no one who has been more in favor of Britain standing shoulder to shoulder with the United States in a number of things that had to be done. And it saddens me that this is the case. But I do fear now that we should think hard and long if we're ever asked to join America in another one of its military yeah. adventures. Because uh, you just won. Is that how they're going to treat us again? 
And I guess that goes wider, even to, even to the future of NATO. I mean, Trump was called the villain for asking other NATO members to all pay 2% of GDP. But this has potentially dealt NATO a hammer blow, hasn't it? Well, I think it sends a major message to NATO, which is that the European members of NATO need to get together. They need to up their defense spending and they need to create a military capability in which they can do certain limited things. Obviously, you can't do what America can do, but we don't need that. But certain limited things without American support. We have operated since the formation of NATO in the late 1940s that almost nothing can happen unless the United States is there. But the point is, in everything that did matter, the Berlin airlift, the Berlin Wall going up, all of that, America was there. And America stood with its European allies and together we were pretty powerful. And in the end, we won the Cold War. The lesson from Kabul is America's not there now. And if NATO is still to matter and be important to the Europeans, then the European members of NATO are going to have to start cooperating together. And in reality, this is a big change. In reality, there's only one other military power in Europe that matters other than ourselves, and that's the French. Yeah. And we're going to have to see a lot more Anglo-French cooperation on the military side to, to fill this vacuum, this hole by a, a parochial isolationist America. What I can't understand, uh, I mean, apart from the sheer barbarism of the Taliban that are back, and I was a bit surprised uh, to see General Nick Carter's comments yesterday that they're, they're sort of somehow country boys who believe in their cause. I think already we're seeing evidence that it is the old Taliban. What I can't believe, Andrew, is the Americans spent a trillion, one trillion dollars on that whole Afghanistan ex you know, expedition over the last 20 years, and yet they vacated, you know, what could be one of the most important lithium deposits in the whole of the world. And lithium, of course, we need for green energy, we need for cars. I mean, this really is an open goal for China, isn't it? Oh, of course, and the Chinese will pour money in and they'll provide the aid money, but they're not going to care whether young Muslim girls are going to school or not. I mean, look at the way they treat their own Muslims in China. Why should they care about human rights in Afghanistan uh, when most people in China don't have any human rights? I don't believe the reason we went into Afghanistan was anything to do with lithium or energy or metals or whatever. It was mainly to deny Islamist terrorists a base from which to launch attacks, as they had used Afghanistan for 9-11. And what has, has upset me, and I think is, has made Mr. Biden's position shameful, is that he presented it as that either we get out entirely, cut and run, which is what he's done, or we have to pour tens of thousands of Western troops uh, back into Afghanistan. It was a false dichotomy. That is not what was needed. Basically, Western forces have not been involved in military action since 2014. There's not been an American military so a soldier killed in Afghanistan since February 2020. The Afghan forces have taken the brunt of the war on the Taliban, but the two and a half thousand Americans backed up still by some other NATO countries, including ourselves, with a limited presence, that was holding the ground. That was allowing girls to go to school. It was allowing electricity. It was allowing for a slow rise in living standards. And all that has been thrown away for no purpose whatsoever. And Afghanistan is now back as a crucible, as a playground for terrorists who wish to do us harm. Is Biden fit to be US president? 
Oh, that's not uh, for me to say. The American people chose him. Uh, and <laughs> they did. With the consequences of that, I didn't have a vote. I don't think you had a vote either. No. We, we don't get, get a vote on that. But I do think it's very disappointing. This is a man uh, who, had, and I've followed his career for a long, long time. But this is a man who prides himself in his acumen on foreign policy and depicted Donald Trump as a kind of, you know, the barbarian in the room uh, who didn't understand any kind of foreign policy. Now, the deal that Mr. Trump did with the Taliban, I think, was a very bad deal, and it shouldn't have been done, particularly letting out 5,000 very bad guys from prison. But Joe Biden didn't have to continue with that. Joe Biden didn't have to see that deal through. He could have changed it. He could have got... There was, Nigel a bipartisan uh, group called the Afghan Study Group. It was yeah. set up by Congress, Republicans and Democrats. And they said, look, things are actually going quite well uh, at the moment. Um, the, the life has been returning to normal. It's not a basket case. If we could keep about four and a half thousand troops to give backbone to the Afghan army, provide intel, and above all, provide air cover, we can make this work. This can work. And yet, for the life of me, President Biden, Biden wouldn't go down that road. I think, you know, he was playing politics. He sees the midterm elections coming up. He could lose the Senate. He could lose the House. That tends to happen in early midterm yeah. elections. And he wants to be able to say, hey, I'm the ones that got, got us out of Afghanistan. But I think, Nigel, is very short-sighted because this story is not over by a long way. Uh, I think you could see some terrible turn of events. Mr. Biden told ABC television in that interview last night in America that no one had been killed on the road to the airport. Twelve people have been killed on the road to the airport so far, and it's only just beginning. If you're an Afghan translator or someone who was helping the Allied forces, the British or the Americans or the French or whatever, yeah. you're not getting through to the airport. The Taliban are controlling access to the airport at the moment. In a sense, as we speak tonight, the Taliban are holding President Biden hostage. There was even a rumor in the Pentagon this afternoon that the Americans had to buy fuel for their um, aircraft from the Taliban. The Taliban are calling all the shots. And for the world's only superpower, that is an ignominious and shameful position to be in. And he can blame who he wants, but it's happened on President Biden's watch and a result of decisions he took which he didn't have to take. It wasn't necessary. Andrew, thank you very much for that analysis, and we look forward to seeing you very soon. Andrew Neil, thank, thank you. Thank, thank you very you. much. Well, that was pretty strong stuff from Andrew Neil, and that's the question I'm asking. Is America still a trusted ally? Well, joining me now is Robert Weiner, former spokesman for the Clinton and Bush White Houses, uh, now a, a Democrat strategist who knows Joe Biden very, very well. Robert, we're delighted to have you with us here on GB News. And you are famous in America, Nigel. It's an honor to be on your show with you. Well, that's very sweet of you. Thank you. Now, can you understand, Robert, can you understand why a lot of us on this side of the pond, uh, myself included, who are instinctively very pro-American, have always been very pro-American, mm. are for the first time really in our lives asking ourselves a question, because Biden did not consult in any way with his NATO allies. He didn't consult with the United Kingdom. And as you well know, you know, for over 100 years, we've stood with each other in virtually every major engagement in the world. And he didn't even have the courtesy 
to speak to Boris Johnson on the telephone until 48 hours after Kabul had fallen with thousands of your nationals, our nationals, translators, you know, trapped in a terrifying limbo land. Can you understand, Robert, why we're asking ourselves, can we still trust America? Well, Biden does the right thing with his heart. And uh, my boss in the White House for six years, four-star General Barry McCaffrey, said that the photo of Biden alone at Camp David was a terrible optic, which symbolizes how alone he was on this decision-making process. And if I were Pelosi, and, and I love Joe, I mean, I'm a strong Biden, but, but I, if I were Pelosi or, or McConnell or Schumer, and we have that Gang of Eight briefing coming up, I'd say, you didn't even talk to us about whether you should at least leave a residual force. And if Biden had left a residual force of a few thousand troops, we would not be in the mess we are now. And we've had residual forces in Germany, in, in Italy, in, in uh, Japan, uh, everywhere, in Iraq. We've always had residual forces and a few thousand. And you know what, Nigel? He's actually recreated it under a different name at the airport. We create, we control the airport now. The two became 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000. It's going to be 7,000. And, and we are also placing the American embassy personnel there. So I just wonder how long he's going to have to sort of backtrack and virtually have that as the residual force in, uh, in Afghanistan. Well, I mean, let's hope the situation at the airport holds and let's hope we can get our nationals right. out and let's hope we can get as right. many Afghan interpreters who helped us so much, you know, over the course Absolutely. of the last 20 years. I mean, you know, none of us know how this, how this ends, but I don't understand. I don't understand, you know, Biden made the point that somehow the Afghan army had fled the field, and yet they've been leading this. They've been in the front line. They've taken 45,000 casualties since 2014. Uh, and it seemed, frankly, it seemed to me that Biden was pointing the finger of blame at the Afghans and not accepting any responsibility for what looks like a very bad decision. It was a very uninformed decision. Uh, but no one is talking about it. Let's make a little news here is when Pompeo met last year with the mullah, mullah Akbar Gadar or whatever, uh, last year and had the yeah. photo op taken. They agreed that the United States would withdraw, they said, May 1st. It turned out to be a little later under Biden. But then what Trump and Pompeo told the, uh, the Taliban was, go set up for a safe and secure situation when we leave. In other words, negotiate the surrender with all the states and communities and all the provinces. That's what happened. That's what happened. And for Biden and the intelligence community to have known that that was preset, prearranged, and that's why not a shot was fired as the Taliban took over, is is unexcusable. And the intelligence heads should roll about the fact that we didn't have spies in there, we didn't have embeds, we didn't have people that knew that this was set up to happen just the way that it did. Well, I think the Trump deal to leave was conditional, was conditional on the Taliban behaving. Um, but, you know, we are where we are. Right. What is this? I mean, we're 200 days, Robert. We're 200 days into the Biden presidency. Um, even before, yep. even before the events in Afghanistan, uh, there was some evidence that, and you know, polls go up and down, and I accept that, I get that. But there was some evidence just 200 days in that in terms of approval rating, the president was having some problems. Um, the vice president appears to be doing even worse 
with public opinion. Uh, what do the Democrats have to do to turn this around? Well, they are. In fact, the fact of the COVID bill being so successful, the fact that uh, that there is uh, an infrastructure bill that is bipartisan and occurred. And by the way, that's a lot of flurry. Pelosi will have a meeting with those nine Democrats, give them a little bit of, of ego, and then all is well. <laughs> that's how she functions. And so uh, there's an enormous success that's about to happen with all of that. I don't know that there's anything that can really, you made the point earlier that, uh, and your other guests that it's very possible that the, the House and Senate are lost because that's normal against the party in power uh, in an off-year election. Yeah. But nonetheless, the Democrats can because of not being Trump and that still is the, law, the largest issue. The horrible things that he's done still to this day trying to claim that the vaccine doesn't, isn't successful and all. That uh, uh, not Trump is still a very strong issue that could save the Democrats, but they've got to pass. They've got to pass uh, an anti-voter suppression bill. But whatever anyone thinks of Donald Trump, uh, and you know, many love him and many hate him, and he's that kind of personality. But the point is this: on the world stage, in terms of foreign policy, he can claim the Abraham Accords. He can claim that he crossed over into North Korea and tried to negotiate. Joe Biden, I mean, he did try. He did try. Joe Biden has just suffered. I mean, Anthony Blinken said, this is not Saigon. This is evidently not Saigon. Uh, I think in some ways this may well turn out to be worse than Saigon. Joe Biden has suffered an international humiliation. And that's the difference, isn't it? Well, 60,000 dead in Vietnam is not 2,000 dead in Afghanistan. So people are forgetting. I'm old enough to remember Vietnam, and that was a horrible thing. Kids were afraid of really dying and made a point of, 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 of forcing a president out. We forced Lyndon Johnson out. Yeah. So Vietnam was far, far, far worse uh, than, than, than the, the numbers in Afghanistan. But having said that, this is a terrible mistake to not have uh, opened the show with you saying to not have left a residual force so that we could have yeah. stopped counterintelligence activities, uh, the, this thing from happening, and it still would have scared away the Taliban enough that they probably wouldn't have done the kinds of attacks and takeover that they did. I think that was a fatal mistake, and uh, he will be called to account on that. Yeah, well, Robert Wiener, can I say thank you very much for coming on and joining us, and thank you, thank you for your frank words. Thank you very much indeed. So there you are. Even one of Joe Biden's best long-term political friends is saying this was a terrible decision. In a moment, we'll talk about the potential refugee situation. Pretty Patel is saying, yes, we'll take 25,000 people from Afghanistan. Other European leaders are saying, no, we can't afford to have a repeat of 2015 when over a million came across the Mediterranean. Much of this now, it would seem, hinges around Turkey. Back in a moment. What I'm asking tonight, is America still a trusted ally? And I'm beginning to worry about that. Andrew Neil said, why would, we tr why would we ever trust them again in the military adventure? And certainly under this president, that would be a very difficult thing to do. But it isn't just what's happened in Afghanistan that's concerning me. Take the US-UK trade deal, something that the previous administration were dying to put in place, but we couldn't do it 
because we haven't got Brexit done. Now, we have got Brexit done. It would appear the Biden administration view a trade deal with the UK as a very low priority. What about travel? We've opened up to Americans. Double-jabbed Americans can now fly into the United Kingdom without needing to quarantine. Yet, there's been no reciprocity from the United States at all. And on issue after issue, I begin to feel that somehow Joe Biden doesn't regard us. Joe Biden perhaps even doesn't like us very much. So I am worried about that relationship. I'm collecting your views, gbviews at gbnews.uk. You can also send in questions from the end of the show under our Barrage the Farage section. Uh, but for now, just a few messages that have come in. James from Yorkshire says on email, I think the US is still a trusted ally and that we still have the special relationship. It's just most likely a case that Sleepy Joe has forgotten where the UK is and what the word special and ally mean. Mm, well, I'm not sure that's right. Mark on email says, Wokeism has killed off America. China and the rest are laughing. China are certainly laughing. Martin on email says, I think that the US military is as shocked as the rest of us at how events have unfolded and how Biden has handled this. Well, with problems like this, just over the horizon, we've got China, we've got Russia. Now is not the time for NATO to fall out with the US, is another message. Well, let's move on uh, to our next guest. And I'm very pleased that joining us now, we have Sir Peter Westmacott, uh, former UK ambassador to Turkey from 2007 to 2011 and ambassador to the USA from 2012 to 2016. And I understand, Sir Peter, you're talking to me from Turkey this evening. Good evening, Nigel. Yes, I am. I'm, I'm in my house in Turkey. I'm very pleased to be in touch with you, thanks to the technology. Well, thank you very much for joining us, and I'm just pleased that it works. I really am. Uh, well, given, given your previous roles, we could easily have you on for the next hour and a half. Uh, let's, let's begin, if we can, uh, with America. Uh, and, you know, you know a lot about that special relationship between our two countries and how it operates, how it works. Is, given what's happened over the weekend, is America still a trusted ally? Well, it's obviously been a very difficult few days. Uh, this is an issue which many people saw coming, but probably not with quite the speed with which the oncoming train hit us. So we shouldn't have been completely taken by surprise. I think it's disappointing, as Andrew Neil was saying quite correctly, uh, that there wasn't a degree of consultation with close allies that we would like to have with America. But I would say that that's often been the way in which the system works. Nigel, you know the United States very well indeed. The National Security Council, whether it's Bush, whether it's Obama, whether it's Trump, it takes its decision. The cogs were, uh, people decide what to do, and then the phone call is made to close allies and saying, we've decided what to do, are you with us tomorrow night, kind of thing. Yeah. So it's always been a bit like that. The relationship, very intimate, it is very special, but we've always had issues, it's always been transactional, and we've always had to fight our corner and make our point of view understood. So this isn't particularly new. What I think is a pity about some of what the president was saying, and you know, I'm, I loved my time in America. I, I knew the vice president, the president is now he's pretty well. You know, I was disappointed to hear things like, you know, the, the Afghan soldiers kind of ran away. Why didn't they fight? Well, apart from the fact that they'd been deprived of, of their advisors, their equipment, their intelligence, they'd also seen the United States of America do a deal with their enemies behind their backs, with the Taliban. 
And so what was there to fight for was what a lot of them felt. And there was also, I think, some questions about the credibility and probity even of the Afghan government. So it's easy enough to point the finger of blame, but I'm afraid that this was, this was not brilliantly handled and a lot of people are now left scrambling. And we are all deeply worried about what happens to a lot of people in Afghanistan, not just the women and girls who are in the front line and have been brutally treated by Taliban in, in the past, but, you know, what about all those Afghan nationals who've put their lives at risk by working directly yes. or indirectly for yes. the British embassy, British yes. government, other international organizations? We have to look after them as well. And this is difficult. And the Taliban have roadblocks between every single compounded embassy and the airport. They are controlling which Afghans can and can't get out. And some governments, including our own, are not being quite as generous as they should be for people who've been spending their lives um, looking after our interests there. So I think it's very difficult. And as, as again, as Andrew was saying, I don't think it needed to be like this. It wasn't a simple binary choice of either we stay in or we lose lots of lives and another trillion dollars. We could have kept the thing going with America in the lead for quite a lot longer at relatively low cost and given Afghanistan a chance uh, of but making a better fist of it. No, we are where we are. Of course, none of us know what's going to unfold at the airport. But the other point I want to raise with you, and it's particularly relevant uh, with you being in Turkey and having served as our ambassador to Turkey, is when it comes to this question of refugees. Now, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know whether some great caravan of people is going to flee, uh, or whether the Taliban will try and stop people leaving. We don't know any of that. But let's assume, let's assume that we do have a refugee crisis on our hands. You know, I notice that you know, senior figures in the CDU in Germany are saying, no, we can't do 2015 again. I know the Greeks are saying we cannot be, uh, you know, an entry point for people coming in to Europe again. We won't do 2015 again. Um, and I saw the EU Foreign Affairs Minister Burrell uh, sort of basically saying, well, you know, Turkey's going to have to step up. Um, but Turkey already, Turkey already uh, has a very large number of displaced people, potential refugees within its borders. I know it's received some money from the European Union and elsewhere. But what is the position right now of Turkey? If, I mean, by the way, Priti Patel is saying we'll take 25,000 in total. Um, and I do agree with you on the debt of honour we owe to the interpreters. But if Priti Patel is saying we'll take these people, that in, in a sense, that starts to encourage people to come to Europe. So what does Turkey do in this situation? Well, Turkey is, is right in the front line. Turkey's got three and a half million Syrian refugees. Uh, Turkey has probably got already 50,000 or so uh, Afghan refugees. They've been coming across the border, I think waved goodbye by the Iranians who don't particularly want to have them on their territory and don't mind seeing a lot of Afghans inside Turkey, creating problems potentially between Turkey and its NATO, NATO allies, including the United States of America. But Turkey is, is pretty um, sensitive to these issues. It doesn't think that it got the money that the European Union promised it for stopping the flow of Syrian and other refugees through Turkish territory into the Greek islands a few years back. Yeah. It doesn't want to hang on to hundreds of thousands of Afghan refugees, always assuming they can get to Turkey through Iran. Curiously, the ones who have arrived all seem to be young males. Now, you know, where are the women and, and, and children? And, you know, we don't know the answer to that. And I, I worry a little bit that the government of Turkey, President Erdogan, may think he's got an understanding with the United States of America 
that America will take off his hands whatever thousands of Afghan refugees turn up on Turkish territory across the border from Iran, whereas I don't actually think there is such an understanding. And so there is going to need to be some pretty intense consultations between all Europeans and Americans and anybody else who cares about the people of Afghanistan to help Turkey share the burden, because Turkey has picked up an awful lot of this over the years in the past. No, that's absolutely true. Um, but how do we deal with this? I mean, uh, I mean, if people, as you say, young males uh, just arrive, uh, it's unlikely that women and children could physically make some of those journeys. You know, women looking after young kids, it's going to be too difficult, it's going to be too gruelling, it's going to be too tough. Um, and we see much the same thing on many parts of the American southern border. This is not an easy physical thing to do. But what does Turkey do? Does Turkey, does Turkey effectively, if the Americans aren't going to play ball, does Turkey effectively just allow people to head off towards Greece? Well, Turkey at the moment is building a long wall on its border with Iran, which is something it's never done before. They've had an open border with Iran for the last 10 years or so, which is why at any one time there's usually a million Iranians in Turkey, and they all have to come to Turkey to get their visas to go to third countries and so on. So Turkey has been traditionally, and they deserve credit for this, very open to people coming across the border from impossible situations. They had 250,000 Kurds when Saddam Hussein was driving them out of their homelands you know, some years back, yeah. and they put all the Syrians there now. What are they going to do? Well, I hope they're going to allow the Afghans to, to come in, and I hope that other governments will liaise with Turkey about resettlement. There are plenty of people who are coming from Afghanistan, and they are precisely the ones who, who probably can make a contribution to other economies and societies, because they're the ones who the Taliban don't want. <laughs> They've got an independent mind or an education yeah. or speak foreign languages, or, or they're not prepared to put up with the brutal regime that the Taliban certainly used to run 20 years ago, and they say it won't be as bad this time round. We have well, to we'll hope see. that, but nobody yeah. can take that to the bank. Yeah. So I think you know Turkey will be uh, being helpful, uh, although the wall is being built. Uh, they will be talking to the Iranians. They are talking to the Taliban. Erdogan has said, we have nothing against the values of the Taliban. That worries me a little bit, but I sort of see what he means. So perhaps some sort of a political understanding can be reached with the Afghan, the people who are in charge in Afghanistan. But I do think the rest of us are going to have to sit down and talk wow. to Turkey and see whether we can share the burden. It's, because it, it's a very real humanitarian need. Yeah, this is going to be a very big story, Sir Peter. Thank you very much for joining us. And we will call on you again, because I've no doubt this is going to be a big story in the months to come. Now, I was concerned yesterday on this program that after the trillion dollars the Americans had spent in Afghanistan, they've walked away and left behind reserves, untapped reserves of lithium, copper, cobalt, gold, uh, and it, three trillion, three trillion dollars worth of mineral reserves in Afghanistan, um, and their neighbors with whom they share a border, China, I would have thought, are laughing. Very few people seem to be concerned about the China dimension, but one that is, is Sir Ian Duncan-Smith, Conservative Member of Parliament for Chingford and Woodford Green, former Conservative Party leader. Um, Sir Ian, good evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm, I'm not yeah, hearing. Yeah. Yes, I can. Hello, good evening. Thank you. Um, I was watching that debate that took place in the House of Commons yesterday. I think you were the only member of Parliament, perhaps I'm wrong, but the only member of Parliament I saw to raise the issue of China uh, in relation to Afghanistan. Is that right? I think there were a couple of others uh, who picked it up uh, uh, after I'd spoken, I think. 
but uh, it's it's the issue that is the follow-on to the, the the fact that we're leaving Afghanistan, and more importantly, the way in which we've left Afghanistan. Uh, if you watched carefully, the point I was trying to make is China um, has now uh, recognized the Taliban and their foreign minister met with the leader of the Taliban uh, and uh, they are therefore very well placed to support them. It's also interesting that Russia is in the same boat and now China, as soon as that happened, a day later, the Global Times, which is the mouthpiece for the Chinese Communist Party and President Xi, uh, pretty much wrote a, uh, an editorial which said that, uh, look out, Taiwan, when the war begins, the Americans aren't coming. And so they're already preparing. I'm, I'm gather there were something like 10 or 15 flights uh, over Taiwan today by military Chinese military aircraft. And there was a, a statement released uh, late yesterday to say, uh, in terms, uh, that China now says to Taiwan, either give up or we're going to take you back. And so all of this has encouraged China to believe that America and Joe Biden are fairly weak and they won't do anything because they're running away from Afghanistan. This is the point that is really important for us to understand. We are in an ideological war, whether we like it or not, with those totalitarian states who are now growing in power. China will soon be the world's largest economy. First time since this whole process began, that uh, the largest economy was not a democracy. That is quite something. No, it really is. Uh, and Ian, if there was to be a physical incursion and a takeover, attempted takeover of Taiwan, uh, the truth is America wouldn't intervene, would it? Well, this is the bit that we really need to know about because America has always been the guarantor of Taiwan. China's behaved abominably towards Taiwan. They got them taken out as observers from the WHO. Had they been in, they may well have questioned what happened at COVID early on, but they weren't allowed to comment on it. Um, you know, and they've therefore, as a result of that, isolated them. But the Americans have still got their fleets nearby and they still exercise through the South China Seas, which, by the way, we forget that the Chinese occupied the South China Seas, which is that area lies to one side of Vietnam and between Vietnam and the Philippines. They have no rights there. The UN has said they have no rights, but they're building these military platforms now across there. And they literally claim that whole area is there. It was rich in oil and minerals. And they, of course, command, they now, I think, have ownership of 85% of the rare earth material mines in the world, which go to the making of this thing that I'm on, and yeah. computers yeah. and telephones and batteries. For cars. And they have the biggest production facilities of those as well. So they've got their eyes on the minerals in Afghanistan. You're quite right in your introduction. Yeah, no. And finally, Ian, former army officer, um, the Americans, you know, NATO allies. Can we still trust America? Well, Nigel, we have to. We have to. America, for all its faults, and we all have faults, but Americas are on a grand scale at times. Uh, America, for all its faults, remains the greatest and best hope uh, for the free world uh, in the pursuit and the support of liberty. We have to get, but our role, I think, is the UK, and I've never been a great believer in the special relationship. We have a close relationship because of yep. the nature of our language, our law, uh, you know, the, the way we tend to look at things as a result of our legal systems is much the same. But we have a role as the UK, I believe, now more than ever, which is to bring America back into the process of global leadership. I have a horrible feeling that uh, President Biden is looking narrowly internally at the moment his next set of elections. 
But we need to remind him that they have an obligation that President Kennedy set out earlier on to bear any burden, to bear any price, to protect liberty. We want to do the same. We have to work together to do okay. that. And it's our job to remind them of that. Serene Duncan-Smith, thank you very much indeed for joining us here on GB News. Well, it's been very much a theme this week of armies and Talibans, and we're going to stick with the military theme, because in Talking Pines, in a moment, I'm going to be joined by one of the great heroes from that Iranian embassy siege of 1980, Rusty Furman. Well, joining me now is SASB Squadron veteran Rusty Furman. Welcome, Rusty, to Talking Pints. Ah, oh, cheers, Nigel. <laughs> cheers. Very good to have you here. Now, there'll be a lot of people watching this who weren't around in 1980 and may not know of the exploit that you were involved in, but we're going to show it to them right now. Perfect. And at least I hope we... Here it is. <laughs> here it is. Boom. And... I mean, the whole country was watching this. Um, just extraordinary. The siege had gone on for some time. They had, they had hostages. Six days, 19 hostages. Six, eventually. Yeah. Right, so, yeah. Yeah, so, well, amazing pictures. So, six days the siege had been going on, 19 hostages. So, what were your orders? What the orders? What were your orders? The I mean, orders I mean, were to rescue the hostages. Yes. That was the mission in yes. those days. And <clears throat> with that, they say the mission to you very clearly twice. And the guys understood. They had six days there preparing, rehearsing, everything you'd expect, no time wasted. And when it finally came to it, proof of murder, a guy called Lavasani, the press attaché for the embassy, he was murdered, executed inside, shot three times. Then they threw his body out on the steps. Yeah. And once he threw his body out on the steps, we had somebody called Mrs. Margaret Thatcher then, the Prime Minister. She wasn't going to have that. Proof of murder on UK soil. UK soil. Um, with that, within minutes, we stood two, and we went into our final assault positions. It took 16 minutes to get into position covertly, and then it took 11 minutes to clear the embassy, six floors, 56 rooms, um, 19 hostages left, which were obviously freed, uh, which was the mission. Five of the gunmen um, didn't make it. Yep. And the other one got out, and he went to prison for 28 years. And is now living on benefits in this country. Is he? Yes. Ah, well, that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, the thing, I mean, I remember it. It was, it was a bank holiday weekend. That's right, May the 5th. Yeah, when all of this happened. And... This had been the news story, you know, for the whole of the previous week, obviously. Uh, but what stunned me was how you managed to do what you did, you know, lots of gunfire. How on earth did you guys manage to work out who the baddies were, who the goodies were? It must have been chaos inside there. It was chaos inside, for definite. Um, but we, as I say, we had five days prior to the sixth day, obviously, yeah. getting bits of information in, um, getting intelligence in, Good briefings, studying as they came in pictures of the would-be um, terrorists and the um, hostages, deciding yourself, getting yourself ready. The team stuff, we worked as a team. Yeah. The individual stuff by looking at... Um, and, to, and, make, and making a quick decision. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. 
you only get the one chance, and that's exactly what happened. But the guys were all capable in the SAS. They're all motivated, self-motivated. You don't have to tell them to do anything. They know what they've got to do. What was, what was going through your mind just before this, this, this all kicked off? <laughs> um, just before it kicked what the yeah, no, final you, assault. You, know, you yourself, before you went in for the final assault, what was going through your mind? Yeah, Alex Higgins was playing in, in the um, World Championship final against Cliff Thorburn. We didn't quite know what the result was. <laughs> that was going on, me and John McAleese and a few of the other guys. Once we got the proof of murder, everything changed. Right. It was get yourself ready. Yeah. I did. Everybody yeah. else did. Yeah. I just forgot my gloves. I, as I say, <laughs> this, is sort of, this famous, I mean, you know, you're, you're trained and trained and trained, Rusty. Yeah. You know, you drill and drill and drill. You're ready for this very dramatic mission. Yeah. And you leave your gloves at home. You know why? Because years later there was a film made about it. It's Rusty with no gloves on. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why I did it. Is it? No. God, can't be. No. no. You just forgot them? No, I didn't forget them. I put them on the table watching the snooker. We got the final call, serious. Normally, my gloves went down my body armour drill. The one time I came in, sat down with John to catch up on the snooker, put them on the table, went outside, realised I didn't have them, but I wasn't going back for them. Right, OK. No, well, you're, you're well known for that. It's all in my book. You know. Well, like I say, you've written books, and you've written a book in particular called The Regiment. Um, about the SAS and your years in the SAS. I mean, it, it was a, a very strange birth, wasn't it, the SAS? I mean, they were, they were a very eccentric group of people in the desert in the 1940s that set this up. Yeah, and I wish I'd been alive then. Trust me, I'd love to have been in those days. Would you? Yeah. Yeah, with yeah. David Sterling David and Sterling, Paddy Main. And, I mean, these were pretty extraordinary people. Yeah, but they didn't take any... I'm not allowed to swear, but they didn't take any rubbish off anybody. You know, they went out and done a job. Yeah. You know, they didn't have lawyers chasing them. You know, they did what they had to do, and they did it properly, and got a lot of credit for it years yeah. to come. Yeah, definitely. And when you write a book like the regiment, I mean, do do people approve? I mean, I mean, there is this sort of thing, isn't there? Are you supposed to talk about being a former SAS soldier? I know everybody does these days. But... It started off, Nigel, with the officers. Okay? Yeah. They were the first ones to write books, but it was okay. But once the guys come out with their stories, it was slightly different. Yeah. And it took a while for them to adjust, you know, because the officers, rules for one, rules for the other. That, that happened. However, eventually, the guys have got the stories. Unfortunately, some of the officers haven't quite got the stories that the guys have got. So, there we are, <laughs> you know. So why not tell them? No, no, the fine. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't, no, you no, know, I wasn't objecting. I'm just saying, what was the protocol with this? Yeah. But you, you say that others broke it first. The officers started the books, as far as I'm aware, by a yeah. long time. The guys just went, you know what, we're pretty clever as well. We've got stories to tell. Let's go ahead and do it. Yeah. And it started way before me. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's exactly what happened. The same as Go, Go, Go. That was the story of the siege, the definitive story. Yeah. Mrs Thatcher had that book in 2011. Yeah. Enjoyed it and read it over Christmas. Yeah. No, no, well, you've, you've been quite prolific, actually. And, Rusty, is the SAS as good today as it always was? Um, I don't follow the SAS anymore. OK. You know, I don't ask questions. I do speak to f um, members. I do believe the training's changed a lot. Um, that's probably to do with cost-cutting and stuff, as it normally is. Um, and they do a great job. So it's very difficult to say we were better. Mm. Um, no, no, I no. just think that the training we did in those days was harder. 
but to say we're better, these guys do a tremendous job under a lot of pressure. Now, we've had guys doing a tremendous job under very extreme pressure, and, you know, there are 7,000 amputees from the Afghanistan conflict, uh, 457 dead. And I know that you worked in security in Kabul. You know Afghanistan yeah. a little bit. Uh, how do you feel about the way this, is, this has all ended? Um, I listened to a lot of people. I, I listened to Ben Parkinson the other day on TV. Who's most a, mul who's a mul multiple amputee, isn't he? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, he was the most seriously injured guy in Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, given very little chance of anything. Ben is a tremendous guy. And it, where he's come to now from them, I was with the um, charity Pilgrim Bandage Charity. Um, for six years and as ambassador working with Ben Parkinson and the other amputees. If it wasn't for the charities and their support, like anything else, mm. they seem to think, the ones I've spoken to lately, that they've been totally betrayed of what's happened mm. and it'll be like, um, you know, like the stuff that's gone on before, it's like Northern Ireland, are there veterans? You know, the veterans and amputees... So do we not look after our veterans properly? No, no, no. I, I mean, I'm on it all the time. Today I've been down to see the Gurkhas, um, you know, and they've yeah. finished their hunger strike today. But I went down to see them, took some pictures, with, had a chat to them, and... But it's only postponed, you know that. It's not finished. Mm. It's postponed until Billy Liar, three months' time in um, <laughs> December... <laughs> Sorry about that. But in December, it's going to be looked at again. And this is, and they want fair pensions. Well, why not? No, then I, these I look... guys have served this country, and I've worked with them. I've trained Nepalese special forces. I know what they're capable of doing, and I've worked with them. But people don't want to do that. Once they finish the job, it's like give them some money, throw them in the corner. And we also we also have veterans living rough on the streets. I mean, there is, there are some real problems here, aren't there? Is is this whole you know, post-traumatic stress disorder? Is this part of what's going wrong? The thing is, when you leave the military, they're not really that interested. What they do is that you walk out the door, you go for a medical somewhere, you'll find out there's something wrong. But because the charities are taking care of it, they've got them on the street for mm. definite. Mm. You know, I'm also a patron of uh, Homeless Veterans uh, Charity up in Scotland. Okay, good for you, yeah. Um, Veteran 180, I'm a patron for them, and I'm a patron for the VC Trust. This is what I do. It keeps you busy, then. Well, not, not busy enough not to see you, Nigel. No, well, I'm delighted that you're here, you know. But and, and, and you were, um, as a young man, a very keen footballer. Yeah, I was um, very keen. I represent the British Army in the end of the day, um, which is as high as you could go in semi-professional football yeah. because I had a career in the Army. But as a five-foot-two run, when I came in, I just wanted to play for Liverpool. But, you know, I was never going to make that. So. <laughs> <laughs> like... and, and, Rusty, so life now, you're living down in, in some beautiful part of Devon, I think, aren't you? I've just moved, Nigel. Yeah. Um, we're up... In the Wirral. Because you were on Dartmoor, weren't you, I think, yeah. at one point? Yeah. Spent nine years there. Yeah. Solitary confinement. Yep. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It was down there for, for nine years, yeah. But once a soldier, always a soldier? Well, I can't stop supporting what's going on, Nigel, um, because until we push it into... You know, we've got a national security advisor, haven't we? Lovegrove. Mm -hmm. Where's he been? I haven't seen anything from him. You know why? He hasn't got a security background. 
and he's a national security advisor. So Boris Johnson and them have to ask him questions. Wow. Didn't take long to get you into fighting spirit, did it? No. Thank you for joining <laughs> us here. That was Rusty Furman, and uh, still the warrior is not very far below the surface. Right, now we get to the last couple of minutes of the show, and this is when you send in your Barrage the Farage questions, which I do not get any pre-sight of. So let's give it another go. John on email asks, Nigel, bearing in mind the dwindling support for the Tory party and there being no effective opposition, would you consider going back into politics by forming a new political party before the next general election? I did it for 25 years. How many more years am I supposed to do it for? I got into politics from business because I wanted us to be freed from the European Union. That was my purpose. That was my goal. And we did it. That's not to pretend there aren't a lot of other issues and a lot of other problems that need dealing with and one suspects. Now, the Taliban have taken Afghanistan, uh, that terrorism uh, may well, sadly, come back to haunt us. I will never rule anything out, but for the moment, I'm pretty much done with politics for the moment. Mark on email asks, are there any better options in the Labour Party to be leader than Keir Starmer? Starmer just doesn't connect. It's just not working. Um, and frankly, Boris has, give, has given Starmer quite a few open goals that he's just, just missed every single time. I tell you what will happen in the Labour Party. This is my prediction. Never said this before. There's a fellow in Manchester called Andy Burnham. Uh, he's pretty slick. He's pretty smooth. He's a good operator. And I think you're going to see at some point, whether that's in two years or five years, I don't know. But I think Andy Burnham is potentially the next leader of the Labour Party. And I think he might make a fair fist of it too. John on email asks, what time does your alarm clock go off in the morning? To be honest, I don't really put it on very often. I'm nearly always up at about five to five. That's about the time I'm up. Get up, cup of tea. And what I've been trying to do, what I've been trying to do uh, ever since lockdown started, really, is to get out uh, you know, and get 45 minutes or an hour's exercise, walking, a bit of stretching every morning. I mean, you know, I've not been exactly a fitness freak for most of my life, but I am at last trying. Richard from Manchester asks an email, who is your favourite lefty? One of them's just died. Austin Mitchell, aged 86, his obituaries are in the newspapers today, and he was a proper lefty, a proper Eurosceptic, represented Grimsby for 38 years in the House of Commons. And we might have disagreed on loads of different things, but you know what? He had a sense of humour. He was a real human being. I also have to say that Tony Benn, one-on-one, -on -one, was hilarious. Great company to be with. The last time I saw Tony Benn, it was a big student conference in Methodist Central Hall in Westminster. And we're backstage with a cup of tea, and Tony got the pipe out, loaded up with tobacco, struck a swan vest, clouds of smoke everywhere. And I said, Tony, there is such a thing as a smoking ban. Oh, yes, she said, but at 87, what are they going to do to me? So he was a complete rebel right towards the very, very end. One more I'm going to do. Gary says, would you do Strictly Come Dancing? Um, look, I don't know. I, 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 I really... I've, my, my left leg was pretty badly hurt in a major road traffic accident a few years ago. I don't think I'd be very good at it, but you never know. Now, folks, 
I am taking next week off. It's the right time of the year, I think, to take a few days, although you never know what may happen news-wise that drags me back. So I should be back with you on Monday week. Uh, but the first month with you, I've enjoyed thoroughly. I hope you have too.